Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 6th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part 46 of our series on the Gospel of John, and it is titled Crime and Culpability. We will not discuss any more of John chapter 19 that we, than we already have. We will only present some information defending Pontius Pilate and hopefully indicating or, or fully proving that only the Jews should have culpability for the crucifixion of Christ. For 2,000 years, they've been trying to push the blame off on the Romans and especially on Pontius Pilate, but in the end, it just isn't going to happen. As we presented our commentary on the opening verses of John chapter 19, we saw that the apostle clearly sought to describe Pontius Pilate in a way that absolved him of any complicity, minimizing his culpability in the murder of Christ. So the first charge by the Judeans regarding Christ that would be a serious offense to Rome was that he claimed to be king, which is not necessarily true, although the Gospels do record others as having made that claim on his behalf. Pontius Pilate, interrogating Christ about that charge, sought the truth of the matter, and when Christ answered him with an inquiry of his own, Pilate asked, Am I a Judean? That evidently indicated that he was admitting having known nothing of matters peculiar to the people of Judea. As he then asked, Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me, what hast thou done? So to answer Pilate's first question, Christ did not deny or admit being a king, and only said that his kingdom was not of this world, while professing that he came into the world only to speak the truth. Although Christ did not deny the charges, charges made by the Judeans, Pilate was nevertheless reluctant to accept them and sought to release him. At this point, a custom is mentioned, which is difficult to verify because it is only mentioned here in the Gospel accounts and not in any other surviving records. Pilate was described as having customarily released a prisoner on the feast as a favor to the Judeans. While Josephus does not discuss anything like this in his histories, he does mention other instances of pardons, which may have been granted by Roman procurators. So Pilate hoped that they would agree to release Christ, but they demanded that he release Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber and a murderer, the leader of a sedition, and therefore he deserved to die. But looking at the name Barabbas, from a prophetic point of view, 
since in Hebrew it apparently means son of the father. In that manner, it may very well represent the fact that Christ had died in exchange for the sins of the sons of his own father. The Judeans, not yet having convinced Pilate that Christ was worthy of death, when Pilate would have no part with his death, they added another charge. So John explained that the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Now Pilate, speaking privately to Christ, had already admitted not knowing anything about the peculiar affairs or beliefs of the Judeans. But as a Roman, only the emperors themselves bore the designation Son of God as a title, and for another man to make such a claim was an affront to the emperor and to the religious sentiments of the time. To Roman religious sentiments of the time. So John wrote that when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Evidently, Pilate was afraid because he knew that he was being given little choice in the matter, yet he continued to resist their demands. So the Jews pushed him further, and they threatened him by telling him that if he released Christ, then he was no friend of Caesar, a description which was actually a treasured political designation. Ostensibly, for Pilate to have been given the office of procurator, or perhaps more precisely, prefect, over Judea for ten years, he must have been a friend of Caesar. But then the Jews said, anyone making himself a king speaks in opposition to Caesar. At this point in the Gospel of Matthew, we read in chapter 27 that when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. As it is often revealed in the histories of Josephus, Throughout this period of history, there had been many seditions, and there were uprisings against the Romans, which were described by Josephus and also mentioned in the book of Acts. Here, where Matthew said that Pilate had seen that a tumult was made, he must have also feared a riot among the Judeans at a time when many tens of thousands of people were in Jerusalem for the feast. So many people may have lost their lives. Frequently, when such troubles occurred, the Judeans sent embassies to Rome to complain about their kings or their governors. And in that process, several of them were removed, including Pilate later in his career, four years after the crucifixion of Christ. If this charge that Christ sought to make himself a king had reached Caesar, especially being attached to the charge that Christ had used a title belonging to the emperor, a title which the emperors used to legitimize their own authority, which is son of God, 
It would have cost Pilate his office, and perhaps also his very life, since he would have been seen as having supported a man who sought to set himself up as a king, possibly even leading a coup or causing a sedition. This was also an age where emperors, or those who would be emperor, were often assassinated, so threats to the imperial authority were taken very seriously. Pilate was certainly in a quandary. Either he had to slay an innocent man whose death meant nothing to the Romans, or suffer the consequences of risking a pardon and losing his position, and possibly also his own life. The political circumstances of the time left Pilate no other choice but to allow the crucifixion of Christ. And, as we also explained, and as John recorded in his own words to Christ, he had the power of life and death over the citizens of Judea. So he had no apparent risk if he had Christ executed. Of course, he feared because he had heard the warning which his wife had received in a dream. And evidently, he must have heard other things about Christ. But his fear was of transcendental consequences, and they were outweighed by the immediate consequences which he would suffer if he did not satisfy the bloodlusts of the Jews. So following our last presentation of this commentary on the Gospel of John, which was titled Gods and Emperors, there was an inquiry concerning some of the claims made by Jews and their Christian sycophants in more recent times, which aimed to mitigate any perception of Jewish guilt over the incident which is described here, and transfer culpability for the crucifixion of the Christ from the Jews to Pontius Pilate. However, even as we have seen in John, Christ himself had said to Pilate, that he that delivered me unto thee has the greater sin. There Christ could only have been referring to the Judeans themselves, and not to Pilate, nor to Rome, nor even to Judas, but only to the scribes, Pharisees, and high priests who had all conspired to kill him. In this endeavor, some commentators who seek to remove the guilt of the Jews go so far as to accuse the apostles John and Matthew of having an agenda by seeking to put the blame for the murder of Christ on the Jews rather than Pilate, as if the Christian gospel is not really representative of the truth but rather that the gospel itself is a conspiracy against the Jews. The audacity, or perhaps the chutzpah, of such commentators is astounding, as they often make these and similar claims under the guise of being Christian publications. Here we shall discuss some of those charges. As this presentation is made, there is an article at stackexchange.com. It's actually a fairly popular website, and it's a subdomain, hermeneutics.stackexchange.com. So it's aimed particularly at 
being a venue which encourages this discussion amongst Bible scholars, or at least would be or pretend Bible scholars. This article at stackexchange.com, which discusses Pilate's act of washing the guilt from his hands. The event was actually only recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And in comments there, we read that Wikipedia says, Pilate's reluctance to execute Jesus in the Gospels has been seen by the Anchor Bible Dictionary and critical scholars, unknown, unnamed critical scholars, a bunch of Jews, I'm sure, as reflecting the author's agenda to place the blame on the Jews and not on Rome. So they claim that Matthew had an agenda other than to tell the truth. A citation was made to the Wikipedia article on Pontius Pilate. However, the Wikipedia article has evidently been edited since that reference was made, and it no longer contains such a statement. It cited the Anchor Bible Dictionary and Critical Scholars, but I cannot verify whether the statement is in the Anchor Bible Dictionary because I do not presently have access to that quite voluminous work. But it is verified in other sources, other independent sources. What I did find is another separate Wikipedia article titled Jewish Deicide, which is said to be part of a series on anti-Semitism, because all Christians must worship the Jews instead of Jesus. There, in reference to Matthew chapter 27, verses 24 and 25, it says, It has also been suggested that the gospel accounts may have downplayed the role of the Romans in Jesus' death during a time when Christianity was struggling to gain acceptance among the then-pagan or polytheist Roman world. Of course, the suggestion is ludicrous. But with that statement, it cites the Anchor Bible Dictionary, Volume 5, pages 399 and 400, published in 1992 by Bantam Doubleday Dell Publishing Group, a whole nest of vipers. Then the article, the same article says, the same Wikipedia article on Jewish deicide, or the Jewish killing of God says that Ulrich Luz, L-U-Z, describes it as redactional fiction invented by the author of the Gospel of Matthew, citing an apparently Swiss theologian with a PhD at the University of Bern, who died last year. Thankfully, he should have died 80 years ago. Then the article continues by saying, some writers viewing it as part of Matthew's anti-Jewish polemic, see in it the seeds of later Christian anti-Semitism. Of course, Jewish behavior has absolutely nothing at all to do with anti-Semitism, and Jewish perversion of the truth and corruption of Christianity has nothing at all to do with anti-Semitism. 
There it cites page 12 of a 2001 book titled Scripture in Tradition by one John Breck, who is described on the Orthodox Wiki as an archpriest and theologian of the Orthodox Church in America. Evidently, not even Protestant theologians and Orthodox priests actually believe the scriptures. But with that, I am not at all surprised. There is another article about Pontius Pilate at the People Pill, People, Blue Pills, People Pill website, which also cites the Anchor Bible Dictionary and states that Pilate's reluctance to execute Jesus in the Gospels has been seen by Anchor Bible Dictionary and critical scholars as reflecting the author's agenda. It has thus been argued that Gospel accounts place the blame on the Jews and not on Rome, in line with the author's alleged goal of making peace with the Roman Empire and vilifying the Jews. Perhaps all of these supposedly informed articles are repeating the same piece of propaganda, as the lead editor of the Anchor Bible Dictionary was also a Jew. Why am I not surprised? A Jew who purportedly converted to being a Presbyterian. Just like a steak on Friday evenings in Catholic neighborhoods can be called fish. Thinking about this statement, it truly reflects an agenda of the Jews, who evidently seek to portray Christ and the apostles as Jewish traitors, when in fact they were neither Jewish nor were they traitors. So this is all an attempt in the ages-old plot of the Jews to undermine and destroy Christianity. However, the same line of thinking, which is reflected by the Converso Jew who edited the Anchor Bible Dictionary, has also infected traditional Christian scholars. In a doctoral thesis presented to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary by one Matthew J. McMaines in December of 2018, we read the following. The dialogue between Pilate and Jesus, his attempt to release Jesus instead of Barabbas, even his symbolic hand-washing declaration of Jesus' innocence cannot, in the end, veil his own complicity, even if reluctant and passive, in the death of Jesus. Saying that, McMaines was citing a commentary on Matthew by one Donald Hagner, and said that while Hagner has argued thus far that Pilate is indifferent to the matter and would rather release Jesus, ultimately he concludes that because Pilate was willing to crucify a man whom he considered innocent, he cannot escape guilt. McMain seeks to lay the blame for the crucifixion equally on both Jews and Romans rather than on the Jews alone, and for that he argues that Pilate was guilty. But Christ had explained that the Jews were far more guilty, and the apostles portrayed Pilate in a manner which consistently minimized his culpability. So it seems that many so-called Christians in academics today are willing to twist the words of the apostles 
even to attribute conspiracies to them in an effort to alleviate the guilt of the Jews in relation to the crucifixion of Christ. Christianity does not represent the truth in their eyes, but is reduced to the level of being a plot against the Jews. While McMains and some others may do this with relative subtlety, others are far more brash. One Philo-Jewish commentator found at a website called Enduring Word, and this website's straight garbage, believe me, which contains the writings of a clown named David Guzik, presents Pilate and his actions related to the crucifixion in a way which seems to be rather typical of such sources. We've read, over the few days I spent preparing this presentation, I've read many such sources that just echo this same trash from David Guzik or from the Anchor Bible Dictionary or from whatever clown that these Jews got it from. And Guzik, I don't know if he's a Jew. The name's Polish. It means button. And <clears throat> evidently it belongs to both Polish Jews and Polish Christians. Button. B-U-T-T-O-N. Guzik needs to be unbuttoned. In a commentary on Matthew chapter 27, Guzik attempts to portray Pilate in the worst possible manner, where he says, History shows us Pontius Pilate was a cruel and ruthless man, unkind to the Jews, and contemptuous of almost everything but raw power. Actually, this is all a lie. History doesn't show us any of this. Here he seems out of character in the way he treated Jesus. Jesus seems to have profoundly affected him. Other commentators, whom we will not introduce here, have used the same claim that Pilate was acting out of character to discredit the entire account and make liars of the apostles. Guzik also makes the claim that as Pilate sat in judgment of Jesus, he failed to give the accused justice. Pilate had all the evidence he needed to do the right thing to release Jesus. Of course, it wasn't Pilate screaming, crucify him, and about to riot. It was the Jews. So who really failed to give the accused justice? And that's one aspect of the role of the Jews that all these commentators just glean over. They don't even consider the behavior of the Jews in their condemnations of Pilate. They only find ways to criticize Pilate, saying that all Guzik cited for evidence was his own imagined portrayal of Christ's demeanor, which is hardly acceptable as evidence, and by which Guzik makes himself a fool. You get a court, you're charged with a crime, you put on a three-piece suit, and look as distinguished as possible and keep your posture as well as possible, that's not going to get you off of the crime. It, it's not, if there's evidence against you and you don't answer the evidence, you're not going to get off of that crime. There was 
charges against Christ, and Christ refused to answer the charges. To the contrary, Pilate had no evidence and no testimony to counter the charges made by the Jews, and many reasons why he was compelled to accept those charges. Seeking to diminish the culpability of the Jews, Guzik's arguments are based on emotional pleas rather than historical reality. Guzik goes on to state that it was out of character for Pilate to bend this way to the religious leaders and the crowd. He could have chosen differently. However, that too is a lie, as we have already demonstrated from a proper view of the circumstances. And we shall see from the testimony of Flavius Josephus that in at least one other crucial moment near the beginning of his tenure as prefect, or as the translations of Josephus call him, procurator, Pilate certainly did concede to the religious leaders of Judea. But Guzik reveals his real agenda, where he says, strangely, in later periods of Christian anti-Semitism, some Christians tried to rehabilitate Pilate, wanting to put all the blame on the Jews. Then, further, in relation to the exclamation of the Jews that his blood be on us and our children, Guzik purposely misinterprets it to mean the exact opposite of what it really meant, where he says, they really had no understanding of what they asked for. They didn't understand the glory of Jesus' cleansing blood and how wonderful it would be to have his blood on us and on our children. But the statement does not mean that the Jews could have accepted the atoning blood of Christ. Rather, it only means that they accepted the guilt for his death Pilate declared his own innocence, and the Jews immediately accepted all responsibility for the crime so long as he would permit it to happen. Then to compound the insolence of his wayward interpretation, concerning Christians who, are, who properly see that the Jews, rather than the Romans, are to blame for the crucifixion. Guzik arrogantly cites Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, which has nothing at all to do with Jews, because Abraham was not a Jew. And he makes the claim that even if this did put these people and their descendants under a curse, even if, like he don't really know, those Christians wicked and foolish enough to curse the Jews have indeed been cursed by God in one way or another. So Guzik, contrary to scripture, warns against cursing Jews. But the Jews are indeed a cursed people, and so is Guzik. And Christians certainly will not be punished for recognizing that. The Apostle John warned in his second epistle that Christians should not even so much as greet anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, lest one be a partaker of their evil deeds. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, and the Jews, 
pretended to put themselves under the law. The Jews, or at least the people of Judah who eventually mingled with the Edomites and became Jews, were cursed by God in Jeremiah chapter 24. And I will deliver them to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places whither I shall drive them. This curse was repeated by Christ himself, where he said in relation to the pending destruction of the temple by the Romans, then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, <clears throat> and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captives into all nations, just like Jeremiah said, they would be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth for their hurt, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse. They shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, or nations, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So by any interpretation of the gospel, Christians have a right and even an obligation to consider the Jews an accursed people. And they certainly are. In another article titled, His Hands Are Still Stained, Guzik exploits a line from the 4th century Apostles' Creed, where it says that Christ had suffered under Pontius Pilate to somehow be proof of Pilate's guilt in the matter. Guzik brazenly concludes he could not avoid this responsibility, and his guilt is forever echoed in the Apostles' Creed. For centuries, Christians have declared that Pontius Pilate's hands are still stained. However, the fact which the Apostles' Creed expresses, that Christ had suffered under Pilate, is only an objective statement, and it does not attribute any guilt by itself. So here we must ask, to whom did the apostles of Christ consign the blame for the crucifixion, the blame for the murder of the Messiah, specifically addressing Israelites in Judea, <clears throat> rather than the Edomites or others who claimed to be Judeans? Peter is recorded in Acts chapter 2 of having said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Then, so these words and the phrase, by wicked hands, cannot be misconstrued. 
Later in his address, he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel, not Israel and the Romans, let all the house of Israel, not Israel and Pilate, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, not you and the Romans, not you and Pilate, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter said nothing about the Romans or about Pilate, but instead he had placed direct blame for the crucifixion on the people of Judea. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus blamed Judeans for the crucifixion, and neither Pilate nor the Romans, where he wrote in his first epistle to the Thessalonians, in chapter 2, and he said, For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Yahshua, Christ Jesus, reading the King James Version, for you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus. He didn't say of the Jews in Pilate or of the Jews and the Romans. He said of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and had persecuted us and they pleased not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the nations that they might be saved to fill up their sins, the Jews' sins, always. For the wrath is come upon them, the Jews, to the uttermost. The King James Version actually has their own prophets, which is not true, as there was a late interpolation in the manuscripts, evidently from after the start of the 7th century. Those words, their own, first showed up in a redaction of the Codex Claromontanus in the 7th century. In any event, according to the apostles themselves, the Jews bear exclusive guilt for the crucifixion of Christ. Even Flavius Josephus, in Book 18 of his Antiquities, did not lay blame for the crucifixion on Pilate alone. Although this passage is contested, there is no real evidence that it is an interpolation, where Josephus apparently wrote in reference to Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. Now, there is, I've read about, but I haven't verified an early Arabic translation of this passage from Greek, which reads a little differently and is not as explicit nor as favorable as Christians may want to see it. But that's immaterial. Pilate did not lay the blame for the crucifixion on Pilate alone. Of course, Josephus was not a Christian. And his information would have most likely come from Jewish sources since he was also a Pharisee and he wasn't even born until 37 AD, which by my calculations is five years after the crucifixion. 
In an article on Pontius Pilate at Wikiwand, <clears throat> we see an assessment of Pilate's tenure in Judea, which is not at all fair, because it judges him by modern standards, where it says that the Jewish historian, now we know Josephus wasn't really a Jew, but Philo probably was, the Jewish historian Josephus and philosopher Philo of Alexandria, both mention incidents of tension and violence between the Jewish population and Pilate's administration. Many of these involve Pilate acting in ways that offended the religious sensibilities of the Jews. He hurt their feelings. The Christian Gospels record that Pilate ordered the crucifixion of Jesus at some point during his time in office. Josephus and the Roman historian Tacitus also appear to have recorded this information. Pacitus did mention Pontius Pilate in connection with the crucifixion of Christ, but Tacitus did not lay any guilt on Pilate for the act. He simply said that Christ faced the ultimate penalty under the, the proconsul Pontius Pilate. Big deal. That's exactly the truth. That doesn't relieve culpability from the Jews. According to Josephus, continuing with our reference, Pilate's removal from office occurred because he violently suppressed an armed Samaritan movement at Mount Gerizim. And yes, that's true. But this assessment is also not fair because it gives one the impression that these things which Pilate had done were extraordinary, when in truth, they were quite common throughout the history of Judea in the first century. Furthermore, it is not true that Pilate ordered the crucifixion of Jesus, but rather only that Pilate was compelled to order the crucifixion of Jesus. As we have shown, if Pontius Pilate had not relented and crucified Christ, there would have been riots in Jerusalem at a time when the population was exceedingly inflated for the feast. We have also already shown, as Josephus had explained, that the people were often so unruly, even under normal circumstances, that the Romans were compelled to station a large contingent of soldiers around the temple during the feasts simply in order to keep the peace. So, if there were a riot, as Matthew also suggested would happen, then many Judeans would have died in the ensuing violence. Pilate would have had to have written Caesar explaining the cause of the riots, and the Jews would have sent an embassy to Rome blaming Pilate himself claiming that he released a man who made himself a king and called himself the Son of God, a title which the Roman Senate had designated to Caesar himself. There is no doubt that Pilate would have lost his position and that his own life would have been in danger as he would have been heavily penalized for his poor judgment. That this would have been the outcome is apparent in several places in the histories of Josephus, where for very similar reasons, the same thing had happened on several occasions. Another 
and usually scholarly resource, which has, blame, which has placed more blame on Pilate for the crucifixion than the true culprits, the Jews, is Livius.org. There, in an article on Pontius Pilate, we read in part, according to Matthew, whose report, and they have in parentheses, whose report cannot be corroborated, so they are attempting to discredit the apostle. According to Matthew, Pilate even washed his hands, a Pharisaean custom to wash away impurity, such as the impurity caused by convicting an innocent man. Of course, this was nonsense. This is Livius.org saying, of course, this was nonsense. I think Livius.org is nonsense. And they continue, as the Supreme Magistrate of Judea, Pilate carried the full responsibility. But it is not implausible that the governor used the occasion to obtain pledges of loyalty from his subjects. John's statement that the Jews even declared to have no king but Caesar may indeed be, may indeed be a historical fact. Pilate may have regretted that he had to crucify a man who was fairly innocent, but he may have considered this human sacrifice an acceptable price to be paid for the smooth cooperation with temple authorities. So here, Matthew is being reduced to a liar. John may or may, may, or may not be more accurate and Pilate was only manipulating those poor, innocent Jews so that they would be his friends. How quaint. In reality, Matthew and John are true, and this article is just one more example of anti-Christian Jewish propaganda. I should say anti-Christ Jewish propaganda. But notice what Livius.org a site which is supposed to be rich in knowledge of ancient history, said about Pilate's handwashing that it was a Pharisaean custom to wash away impurity. But this is wrong on two counts. First, to the Hebrews, handwashing does not wash away sin. And second, the writer ignores the fact that certain Greeks and Romans did believe that it could symbolically wash away sin. However, there are many other articles available which even discount the act of handwashing by Pilate because, as they say, it was something that only the high priests did, or it was only a Jewish tradition, etc., some commentators have even ignorantly stated that the account of Pilate's handwashing could not be true, since it was only something which the high priest did. So here, we have several refutations to make concerning Pontius Pilate. First, we answer the question as to whether Pilate was really acting in ways that offended the religious sensibilities of the Jews like hurting their feelings.
or if he was only trying to do what was expected of him as a Roman governor. Then we shall address the question of Pilate's supposed character as a cruel and ruthless man, unkind to the Jews and contemptuous of almost everything but raw power. Then we shall examine why Pilate used a water basin to wash his hands of any guilt related to the crucifixion of Christ. We have already defended Pilate by explaining the true reasons as to why he was compelled to have Christ crucified in the historical context of the time. But that shall also, also, that shall also hopefully become even more apparent here. Herod Archelaus, let's go back to 4 BC, 4 BC to 6 AD. Herod Archelaus was the heir to his father's kingdom, but he was not appointed king by the Romans. So when the Edomite king called Herod the Great died, and I believe he probably didn't die until 3 or 2 BC, Archelaus was made ethnarch over half of his father's former kingdom. He ruled over Judea, Edomia, and Samaria for perhaps about nine years, until he was removed and exiled in 6, BC, in 6 AD, in Book 2 of his Wars of the Judeans. Josephus summarized his rule as follows. And now Archelaus took possession of his government, and used not the Jews only, but the Samaritans also barbarously. Notice, Joseph, Josephus didn't say that he used the Edomites barbarously. He used not the Jews only, but the Samaritans also barbarously. And out of his resentment of their old quarrels with him, whereupon they, both of them, the Judeans and the Samaritans, sent ambassadors against him to Caesar, and in the ninth year of his government, he was banished to Vienna, a city of Gaul, and his effects were put into Caesar's treasury. The Judeans actually grew accustomed to sending such embassies to Rome for various reasons in the time of the first Herod, to complain about some perceived injustice or another. And this practice was maintained all throughout the period, as other nations ruled by Rome also frequently used such embassies. After Archelaus, the former kingdom was divided into tetrarchies, and several of Herod's other sons were each given a fourth part of their father's former estate over which to rule. From that time, Judea was made a province and the emperor regularly appointed a prefect or a procurator over it to govern it in the interests of Rome. Whether Pilate was a prefect or a procurator has been a matter of debate. In translations of Josephus, he is called a procurator, which is the term that we often repeat. But officially, he was a prefect as the Pontius Pilate inscription, which was discovered at Caesarea Maritima, 
Caesarea, which was on the coast of the Mediterranean. And it's called Caesarea Maritima to distinguish it from Caesarea Philippi, which was in Galilee. And there were other Caesareas also. It, this inscription was discovered at Caesarea Maritima in 1961, and it affirms that Pontius Pilate was a prefect. Prefects were of the equestrian order, and they commanded troops, while procurators were usually of the higher senatorial class and were generally financial administrators. But in the imperial provinces, which were military provinces, the prefect had authority over military, financial, and judicial affairs. After the deposition of Archelaus, he was um, exiled to Gaul, unfortunately for the Gauls. After the deposition of Archelaus, Judea was governed by prefects, of which Pontius Pilate was the fifth. The first three, Caponius, Marcus Ambivius, or in some texts, Ambivius, and Annius Rufus had each held the office for only about three years. The fourth, Valerius Gratus, was despised by the Judeans for removing Annas, the Hannes of the Gospel accounts, from the office of high priest. But he nevertheless managed to retain his appointment for 11 years. After he returned to Rome, Pilate was appointed as prefect and he held the office for 10 years, from about 26 to 36 AD. So at least four of those years followed the crucifixion of Christ. In modern Christian articles on Pilate, he is often demeaned as a governor, accused of cruelty, incompetency, and many other faults which are not consistent with the actual historical record. Of all the Roman governors of Judea, Gratus had held the office the longest, and Pilate was second only to him in longevity. Marcus Antonius Felix, who is known to Christians from the later chapters of the Book of Acts, had the fourth longest tenure at eight years. Few others lasted longer than three years, and out of 30, recorded Roman governors of Judea, where they were, whether they were legates or proconsuls or prefects, over 30 recorded Roman governors of Judea over a period of nearly 130 years. Out of them, only six men managed to hold the office for four years or longer. It was actually one for four, one for five, one for eight, one for... 10 and 1 for 11, it may have been only five men that I could remember right now. Pilate, having held it for 10 years, must have managed it quite well for at least most of that time. Judea was a troublesome province, and Rome usually had demonstrably little patience with incompetent administrators. And yes, it was six men. Another man 
served longer than Felix, but not as long as Pilate served for nine years. But it's only six men that had this office for longer than three years. According to Flavius Joseph, Caponius was the first prefect of Judea after Archelaus was removed. And he had returned to Rome after certain Samaritans had evidently littered Jerusalem with corpses. The same Caponius, I guess that also may have offended the religious sensibility of the Jews. I'm joking, right? The same Caponius had quite violently crushed the tax protesters who had followed Judas the Galilean a few years earlier. From Wars, Book 2, we read, And now Archelaus' part of Judea was reduced into a province, and Caponius, one of the equestrian order among the Romans, was sent as procurator. Having the power of life and death put into his hands by Caesar. This affirms the question by Pilate to Christ, as it is recorded in John, where he wrote in chapter 19 of his gospel, Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Continuing with the account from Josephus, under his administration, meaning Caponius, it was that a certain Galilean named Judas prevailed with his countrymen to revolt and said they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to the Romans and would, after God, submit to mortal men as their lords. This man was a teacher of a peculiar sect of his own and was not at all like the rest of their leaders. Having read several translations of the literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this passage and what followed about Judas's leading a fourth sect after the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes has convinced me that Judas was the leader of the sect which kept the Dead Sea Scrolls and wrote the sectarian literature which was found among them. The Dead Sea Scroll, popularly called the, the War Scroll, fully reflects this same attitude which the sect had towards Rome and towards all of the Judeans who had cooperated with Rome. However, Josephus does not say much about Caponius or even how he put an end to the tax protest led by Judas the Galilean. But the book of Acts in Acts chapter 5 records Gamaliel as having said that after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished and all, even as many as had obeyed him, were dispersed. Later in Wars book 2, Josephus calls this Judas a very cunning sophister. Writing in Antiquities, book 20, speaking of the procurator, the procurator's fattest, whose tenure was from 46 to 40, I'm sorry, 44 to 46 AD, and his successor Alexander, 
who governed Judea from 46 to 48 AD. Josephus referred once again to the protest of Judas the Galilean, and he said, under these procurators, that great famine happened in Judea, in which Queen Helena bought grain in Egypt at a great expense and distributed it to those who were in want, as I have already related. And besides this, the sons of Judas of Galilee were now slain. I mean that Judas who caused the people to revolt when Quirinius, hearkening back to 40 years back to 6 AD, when Quirinius came to take an account of the estates of the Judeans, as we have shown in a foregoing book, the names of those sons were James and Simon, whom Alexander commanded to be crucified. That's 14 to 16 years after the crucifixion of Christ by Pilate. Crucifixion was a common occurrence throughout this period. The earlier account to which Josephus had referred is found in Book 18 of Antiquities, and we will repeat much of it. Now, Quirinius, a Roman senator, and one who had gone through other magistracies, he had other appointments, and had passed through them till he had been consul, which is the highest rank he could have obtained, except emperor, and one who, on other accounts, was of great dignity, came at this time into Syria with a few others, being sent by Caesar to be a judge of that nation and to take an account of their substance. I believe there were only two consuls at a time in Rome, and each would serve for two years as an appointment, and then they would be relieved where they would go back to their old position and the Senate. Caponius also, a man of the equestrian order, was sent together with him to have the supreme power over the Judeans. Moreover, Quirinius came himself into Judea, which was now added to the province of Syria, to take an account of their substance and to dispose of Archelaus's money. But the Judeans, although at the beginning they took the report of a taxation heinously, yet did they stop any further opposition to it by the persuasion of Joazar, who was the son of Boethus and the high priest. So they, being persuaded by Joazar's words, gave an account of their estate without any dispute about it. So the Judeans just paid the tax. Yet was there one Judas, a Golanite, I don't know why he's called a Galilean there. He should have been called a Galilean. Maybe it was a difference in Josephus' spelling. Maybe it was Whiston's error. I neglected to check the Greek. It's not that important. Yet it was one Judaeus, a Galilean, of a city whose name was Gamala, who, taking with him Sadok, Sadok is actually the word we get Sadducee from. It's a Hellenization of the Hebrew name Zadok. Sadduk, a Pharisee, became zealous to draw them to a revolt, who both said that this taxation was no better than an introduction to slavery and exhorted the nation 
to exert their liberty, as if they could procure them happiness and security from what they possessed, and an ensured enjoyment of a still greater good, which was that of the honor and glory they would thereby acquire for magnanimity. They also said that God would not otherwise be assisting to them than upon their joining with one another in such counsels as might be successful and for their own advantage, and this especially if they would set about great exploits and not grow weary in executing the same. So men received what they said with pleasure, and this bold attempt proceeded to a great height. All sorts of misfortunes also sprang from these men, and the nation was infected with this doctrine to an incredible degree. This is the Judea. This describes the Judea that was just before the time of the beginning of the prefecture of, of Pontius Pilate, the tenure as prefect of Pontius Pilate. One violent war came upon us after another, and we lost our friends, which we used to alleviate our pains. There were also very great robberies and murder of our principal men. This was done in pretense indeed for the public welfare, but in reality for the hopes of gain to themselves. Where arose seditions, and from them murders of men, which sometimes fell on those of their own people by the madness of these men toward one another, while their desire was that none of the adverse party might be left and sometimes on their enemies. A famine also coming upon us reduced us to the last degree of despair, as did also the taking and demolishing of cities. Nay, the sedition at last increased so high that the very temple of God was burnt down by their enemies' fire. The temple that... Herod rebuilt the temple and it took 46 years. And that's apparently the temple that existed at the time of Christ, but that 46 years may have lasted well after the death of Herod, so perhaps it wasn't finished by the time Herod died. It couldn't have been finished by the time Herod died, because Herod didn't start it until long after he became king, around 36 BC. So, perhaps this fire in the temple simply set back the construction and added to the length of time that the construction took. It's difficult to say, because this couldn't have happened until well after 6 AD. The very temple of God was burnt down by their enemy's fire. Such were the consequences of this, that the customs of our fathers were altered, and such a change was made as added a mighty weight toward bringing all to destruction, which these men occasioned by their thus conspiring together. For Judas and Sadduck, who started a fourth philosophic sect among us, and had many great followers therein, filled our civil government with tumults at present, and laid the foundations of our future miseries by the system of philosophy, which we were before unacquainted with, concerning which I will discourse a little, and this the rather, because the infection which spread there among the younger sort, who were zealous for it, brought the public to destruction. And my point here is to show that there was a long history of seditions and uprisings in Rome 
before Pilate took office. Thus far, it should be evident that both Jews and Judeans were accustomed to sending embassies to Rome to complain about their rulers, but also of the seditions and uprisings against Rome, which often had to be put down with violence, and that this condition persisted for some time in the years leading up to the appointment of Pilate. In Antiquities Book 18, Josephus summarized the end of the tenure of Caponius. As Caponius, who we told you was sent along with Quirinius, was exercising his office of procurator and governing Judea, the following incidents happened. As the Judeans were celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we call the Passover. Now, this had to happen in the years 8 or 9 AD, right around there. It was customary for the priests to open the temple gates just after midnight. When, therefore, those gates were first opened, some of the Samaritans came secretly into Jerusalem and threw around dead men's bodies in the cloisters, on which account the Judeans, the cloisters referring to the temple, the portions of the temple, on which account the Judeans afterward excluded them out of the temple, which they had not used to do at such festivals. And on other accounts, also they watched the temple more carefully than they had formerly done. A little after this incident, Caponius returned to Rome, and Marcus Ambivius came to be his successor in that government, under whom Salome, the sister of King Herod, died and left to Julia, Caesar's wife, meaning Tiberius Caesar, Jamnia, a city in Palestine, all its toparchy, and Phasaelus in the plain, and Archelaus, referring to a place, where there is a great plantation of palm trees, and their fruit is excellent in its kind. Following this, the Samaritans just throwing dead bodies all around Jerusalem. Following this, Josephus merely mentions the other successors of Caponius. But like Marcus Ambivius, he hardly says anything specific about them or any of the events of their tenures, where he continues and he says, After him, after Marcus, came Annius Rufus, under whom died Caesar, meaning Augustus Caesar, Octavian, the second emperor of the Romans, the duration of whose reign was 57 years, besides six months and two days, of which time Antony, Mark Antony, ruled together with him 14 years, but the duration of his life was 77 years, upon whose death Tiberius Nero, his wife Julia's son, succeeded. He was now the third emperor. So Julia was Octavian's wife, not Tiberius's. I'm sorry. I was out of time a little bit. He was now the third emperor, and he sent Valerius Gratus to be procurator of Judea and to succeed Annius Rufus. So Gratus would be the fourth prefect. This man deprived Ananus of the high priesthood. Ananus had been high priest for nine or ten years at that time. And he appointed Ismael, 
the son of Fabi, to be high priest. He also deprived him in a little time and ordained Eleazar, the son of Ananus, who had been high priest before, to be high priest. Which office, when he had held for a year, Gratus deprived him of it and gave the high priesthood to Simon, the son of Comethus. And when he had possessed that dignity no longer than a year, Joseph Caiaphas was made his successor. Caiaphas, the Caiaphas of the Gospels, who was the son-in-law of this Ananus that he originally removed. Ananus or the Annas or Hannas of the Gospels. When Gratus had done those things, he went back to Rome. After he had tarried in Judea 11 years, when Pontius Pilate came as his successor. Unlike his immediate predecessors, Pontius Pilate is mentioned quite often by Josephus. So now we will offer an account found in Antiquities Book 18, which certainly does show that Pilate was not as cruel as the modern commentators make him out to be. Here, Pilate did exhibit empathy at a time when he was not compelled to do so. This we read where Josephus records an event wherein Pilate had sought to uphold the Roman traditions of the time, and we will prove this later, as he came into, the, into office in Judea. Although it is evident that his predecessors failed to do so, and he brought the Roman images into Jerusalem. So Josephus writes, But now Pilate, the procurator of Judea, moved the army from Caesarea to Jerusalem to take their winter quarters there in order to abolish the Jewish laws. So he introduced Caesar's effigies, which were upon the ensigns, and brought them into the city, whereas our law forbids us the very making of images, on which account the former procurators were wont to make their entry into the city with such ensigns as had not those ornaments. Pilate was the first who brought those images to Jerusalem and set them up there, which was done without the knowledge of the people because it was done in the night time. And here, Josephus was not born until, if memory serves me correctly, until about 37 AD. So he's getting this account from others. He's not getting it directly. That this is from probably his parents, his uncles. Josephus in his older life was a good friend of Herod Agrippa too. Maybe he's getting this information from the Herods and because and, he's associated and familiar and intimate with their family. So Josephus had connections where he could get a lot of this um, history of the past generations, but this doesn't add up because if Pilate was the first to try to bring these effigies into Jerusalem, why did he do it at night if he was the first? That doesn't that that just doesn't quite add up to me. Like Josephus probably I, I believe Josephus was totally honest, but didn't have the whole story himself. So Pilate was the first who brought those images to Jerusalem and set them. But as soon as they knew it, they came in multitudes to Caesarea 
and interceded with Pilate for many days that he would remove the images. And when he would not grant their requests, because it would tend to the injury of Caesar, while yet they persevered in their request, on the sixth day, he ordered his soldiers to have their weapons secretly, while he came and sat upon his judgment seat, which seat was so prepared in the open place of the city. So we see how Pilate had his trial of Christ while the Judeans would not enter into the Praetorium, that it concealed the army and lay ready to oppress them. And when the Jews petitioned him again, when the, properly, when the Judeans petitioned him again, he gave a signal to the soldiers to surround them and threatened that their punishment should be no less than immediate death unless they would stop disturbing him and go their ways home. But they threw themselves upon the ground and laid their necks bare and said they would take their death very willingly rather than the wisdom of their laws should be transgressed, upon which Pilate was deeply affected with their firm resolution to keep their laws inviolable and present presently commanded the images to be carried back from Jerusalem to Caesarea, meaning Caesarea Maritima, which was the seat of his government. He kept a praetorium at Jerusalem that was actually the former palace of the first King Herod. To show that this was indeed a tradition, a Roman tradition, which Pilate sought to uphold. And therefore, he was acting as a Roman prefect may have been expected to act. We will present Joseph's, Josephus's account of a similar event, which happened later under the rule of Publius Petronius, who was appointed to the post of legate of Syria, a post higher than prefect, in 39 AD by the emperor whom Josephus calls Gaius, but whom history remembers by his childhood nickname of Caligula. This account probably happens about 13 to 14 years after the account of Pilate, which we have just read. This account is found in Wars of the Judeans, book two. But when Gaius, meaning Caligula, when Gaius was made Caesar, he released Agrippa from his bonds, referring to Herod Agrippa II, the Agrippa of Acts chapters 25 and 26, and made him king of Philip's tetrarchy, who is now dead. But when Agrippa had arrived at that degree of dignity, he inflamed the ambitious desires of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas is Herod the Tetrarch of the Gospels. Philip's brother and Agrippa's uncle, this Agrippa's uncle, he inflamed the ambitious desires of Herod the Tetrarch. Philip's brother and Agrippa's uncle that's my words. I'm sorry. I'm rereading something I wasn't supposed to. 
who was chiefly induced to hope for the royal authority by his wife, Herodias. And she is the woman who urged her daughter to demand the head of John the Baptist. And she was also his niece. She was the first cousin of Herod Agrippa II. She was the niece of her husband. She was the niece of her dead uncle. Wow. His wife, Herodias, who reproached him for his sloth and told him that it was only because he would not sail to Caesar that he was destitute of that great dignity. In other words, his wife Herodias thought her husband should have been a king. He was only a tetrarch. If he was a king, he would have full power over his kingdom. He, he would have the power of life and death over his subjects. And, and he would have much more um, dignity and much more ability to rule freely than a mere tetrarch. For since Caesar had made Agrippa a king from a private person, because Herod Agrippa II didn't hold any post when he was made king over Philip's former tetrarchy, much more would he advance him from a tetrarch to that dignity. These arguments prevailed with Herod, so that Herod Antipas, so that he came to Gaius, meaning Caligula, by whom he was punished for his ambition, the whole thing backfired, by being banished into Spain. For Agrippa followed him in order to accuse him, to whom also Gaius gave his tetrarchy. So Agrippa backstabbed his uncle and doubled the size of his kingdom, basically. Getting his uncle's tetrarchy as part of his kingdom. This is the lovely family of the Jewish Edomite Herods. <laughs> so Herod died in Spain, where his wife had followed him. Agrippa would now be a king over that half of Judea, Agrippa II, which his uncle Archelaus was not appointed over. Now Gaius Caesar did so grossly abuse the fortune he had arrived at as to take himself to be a god and to desire to be so-called also and to cut off those of the greatest nobility out of his country. He also extended his impiety as far as the Judeans. The entire period of Caligula's rule is missing from the annals of Tacitus, about four years. Until Caligula, emperors were the son of God, resisted being considered gods until they died, and after Caligula also, as Nero would not even consider the honor. I didn't mention Caligula in my last podcast explaining that title, Son of God, simply because I didn't have this information from any Roman authorities. Not yet. I haven't seen it yet. It's only here in Josephus. Accordingly, he sent Petronius with an army to Jerusalem to place his statutes, his statues in the temple and commanded him that in case the Jews would not admit them, he should slay those that opposed it and carry all the rest of the nation into captivity. But God concerned himself with these, his commands. Josephus, because this didn't happen, Josephus is attributing it 
to Yahweh, to the God of the Judeans. However, Petronius marched out of Antioch into Judea with three legions, that's at least 12 or 13,000 troops, and many Syrian auxiliaries. Now, as to the Judeans, some of them could not believe the stories that spoke of war, but those who did believe them were in the utmost distress how to defend themselves, and the terror diffused itself presently through them all, for the army was already come to Ptolemais. Later on, describing the outcome of this situation, which did not result in war, where Josephus continues, he wrote in part, but now the Judeans got together in great numbers with their wives and children into that plain that was by Ptolemaeus and made supplication to Petronius, first for their laws and in the next place for themselves. So he was prevailed upon by the multitude of the supplicants and by their supplications and left his army and the statues at Ptolemaeus and then went forward into Galilee and called together the multitude and all men of note to Tiberius, and showed them the power of the Romans, and the threatenings of Caesar, and, besides this, proved that their petition was unreasonable, because, and this is the key part right here, because while all the nations, in subjection to them, had placed the images of Caesar in their various cities among the rest of their gods, meaning in their own pagan temples. For them alone to oppose it, meaning the Judeans, was almost like the behavior of revolters and was injurious to Caesar. And when they insisted on their law and the custom of their country and how it was not only permitted them to make either an image of God or indeed of a man, and to put it in any despicable part of their country, much less in the temple itself, Petronius replied, and, and not I also, said he, bound to keep the law of my own Lord. For if I transgress it and spare you, it is but just that I perish, while he that sent me, and not I, will commence a war against you, for I am under command as well as you. That's the exact position Pilate was in. With this, it should be fully evident that Pilate did nothing extraordinary by bringing images of Caesar to Jerusalem. If he was acting in ways that offended the religious sensibilities of the Jews, it was only to uphold the religious sensibilities of their more powerful Roman rulers, which is what we have witnessed in the account of this similar action by Petronius. Later, in the time of Nero, this problem, this same problem surfaced again, but the subsequent war and destruction of Jerusalem finally put it to an end. The history of Judea vindicates Pontius Pilate of the charges leveled against him by modern Jews and their sycophants. Pilate was not ruthless or cruel, according to the standards of the times, and he did not innovate by violating Jerusalem with the images of Rome, since, as Josephus records here, 
all the nations in subjection to them, to the Romans, had placed images of Caesar in their various cities among the rest of their gods, meaning in their own temples. Here we will continue with just a little more of this account where Petronius had shown the same empathy for the Judeans that Pilate had exhibited 13 years earlier. Hereupon the whole multitude cried out that they were ready to suffer for their law. Petronius then quieted them and said to them, Will you then make war against Caesar? The Judeans said, We offer sacrifices twice every day for Caesar, which is basically idolatry, and for the Roman people, offering sacrifice for pagans, but that if he would place the images among them, he must first sacrifice the whole Judean nation, and that they were ready to expose themselves, together with their children and wives, to be slain. At this, Petronius was astonished and pitied them on account of the inexpressible sense of religion the men were under, and that courage of theirs, which made them ready to die for it, so they were dismissed without success. There is a ridiculous article about Pilate. If, if you know, if any, wow, any article that talks about the Bible and doesn't quote secular histories, especially the New Testament, where there's such a wealth of information available that supplies context, real historical context, anybody that just says things about Christ or the apostles or Pilate or Herod or, or Caesar, and, and they're just blowing smoke out of their nostrils and they don't have citations and, and um, passages that supply patterns of historical context by which these things can really be understood. It's just a joker. They're just jokers. 90% of the commentaries I saw when I was researching, and I probably looked at 200 commentaries, and I picked out the ones I thought that were best representative of all of the arguments that I wanted to cover. Most of them didn't cite any substantial histories or go through any um, substantial passages. They just blew steam and, and made up stuff. They just made up things without considering it, or they accepted the words of dubious sources without even considering it or looking at it critically. They only want to look at Pilate critically and they want to look at the apostles critically, that they're just manufacturing information that, that supports their agenda. And they're all clowns. There is a ridiculous article about Pilate at the Christian Courier website, which states in reference to the ancient inscription, which he evidently commissioned. In 1961 at Caesarea, an inscription mentioning Pilate's name was discovered, the first of its kind, and all that's true. A free translation, free because it's not really true, a free translation is as follows. The Tiberium, a temple dedicated to the worship of Tiberius, now that's not true, of the Caesareans Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has given. The inscription illustrates how the Judean governor bowed and scraped before Caesar. This is the really ridiculous part. The inscription illustrates how the Judean governor 
bowed and scraped before Caesar, and thus harmonizes beautifully, this is bullshit, with the New Testament account that casts him in a similar light. The sustained corroboration of Bible history by means of archaeological discovery is faith-building indeed. And I would say that it is edifying to see scriptures supported by archaeology. However, it's much more edifying when it's all properly interpreted. Of course, the opinions in this paragraph are lies, because the writer is obviously ignorant of Roman religious sensibilities and the historical context of the inscription. The writer is also not properly representing the inscription, and epigraphers have interpreted the surviving words, a couple of which are surmised by a single letter, to read, To the Divine Augusti, this Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea, has dedicated. The former emperor, Augustus, was officially proclaimed to be divine, to be a god by the Roman Senate. And the temple was dedicated to him while it was named after Tiberius. All of this is in keeping with the Roman traditions of the time. The form of the word Tiberium indicates the name of the temple, but not that it was the temple was dedicated to Tiberius. It would have a different grammatical case, if that were true. The cult of emperor worship began in the early years of Octavian, or Augustus Caesar. Julius Caesar was actually first deified, made a god by the Roman Senate. And it continued for over three centuries, until at least the time of Constantine. Even the first Herod, called Herod the Great, had built a temple for the earlier Julius Caesar. Josephus writes in Antiquities Book 15, <clears throat> So when he had conducted Caesar to the sea and was returned home, he built him a most beautiful temple of the whitest stone in Xenodorus's country near the palace near the place called Penion. This is a very fine cave in a mountain under which there is a great cavity in the earth and the cavern is abrupt and prodigiously, prodigiously deep. I'm sorry, I trip over that word. And full of a still water. Over it hangs a vast mountain, and under the caverns arise the springs of the Jordan River. Herod adorned this place, which was already a very remarkable one, still further by the erection of this temple, which he dedicated to Caesar the temple which Pilate dedicated to Augustus and named after Tiberius was certainly not novel. It was done by governors and kings all the time. As we have already explained in part of our commentary on chapter 18 of this gospel titled, What is Truth? When Vitellius was governor of Syria, there was an uprising and armed insurrection led by a Samaritan who claimed to be a reincarnation of Moses. Pontius Pilate put down the insurrection and executed its leaders. He really did not do much different than Caponius had done in putting down the rebellion of Judas of Galilee. 
But for one reason or another, the local Jews were dissatisfied with Pilate. So Josephus wrote in, wrote in Book 18 of his Antiquities, when this tumult was appeased, the Samaritan Senate sent an embassy to Vitellius, a man that had been consul and who was now governor of Syria, and accused Pilate of the murder of those who were killed, for that they did not go to Tirathaba, the village where they assembled, in order to revolt from the Romans, but to escape the violence of Pilate, who, according to Josephus, had not yet caused them any violence. So Vitellius sent Marcellus, <clears throat> a friend of his, to take care of the affairs of Judea and ordered Pilate to go to Rome to answer before the emperor to the accusations of the Jews, of the Judeans, perhaps. So Pilate, when he had tarried 10 years in Judea, made haste to Rome, and this in obedience to the orders of Vitellius, which he dared not contradict. <clears throat> But before he could get to Rome, about 36 AD, Tiberius was dead and Caligula became the emperor. But perhaps Vitellius was not so harsh on Pilate as this account may indicate, because at the same time, he also replaced Caiaphas, who had been the high priest for longer than Pilate had been the prefect. In any event, Pilate managed to remain in his office for 10 years, longer than any prefect except for Valerius Gratus, another governor of Judea who is mentioned in the scriptures, the Roman procurator Marcus Antonius Felix, who held the office from 52 to 60 AD, was also removed for charges of brutality. Josephus wrote very plainly about his crimes. And another historian, Tacitus, substantiated Josephus in reference to Felix from a different perspective, writing initially of his brother, Marcus Antonius Pallas, <clears throat> and stating that Pallas's brother, the knight Antonius Felix, who was the governor of Judea, showed less moderation, backed by vast influence, he believed himself free to commit any crime. Tacitus mentioned Pontius Pilate as well, but only in connection to the crucifixion, where concerning Christians and writing of the time near the end of the rule of Nero, who was persecuting Christians, he said, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, the name Christian, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. <clears throat> Here is also apparent that Tacitus was imbued with Jewish propaganda and slander concerning Christianity, as was the rest of Rome. There is a lengthy condemnation 
there is a lengthy condemnation of Pontius Pilate, which is found in a work of his called Embassy to Gaius, paragraphs 299 and 304, in the works of Philo Judahius, who was a he was a Jew, no doubt. He was born about 25 AD, who spent most of his adult life reading and studying, I believe, in Alexandria. In this book, Philo is apparently reproducing a letter, which he claims was written by King Agrippa I to the Emperor Gaius Caligula, <clears throat> which used Pontius Pilate as a negative ex example of how to govern Jerusalem or I should say, how not to govern Jerusalem. Evidently, Philo manufactured this letter himself, since his work was aimed at instructing the new Roman emperor Claudius, about 41 AD, on how a virtuous ruler should deal with the Judeans. This is one conclusion in a balanced and seemingly prudent review of Philo's depiction of Pilate, which is found in a publication called Restoration Quarterly in an article titled Philo on Pilate, Rhetoric or Reality? I am convinced it is surely just rhetoric. In other words, it's bullshit. So Philo, through the mouth of Agrippa, said that Pilate had, with the intention of annoying the Jews rather than of honoring Tiberius, he set up gilded shields in Herod's palace in the holy city. Then, a little further on, after several lengthy embellishments, Philo portrays the Judeans as saying to Pilate, Do not make Tiberius an excuse for insulting our nation. He does not want any of our traditions done away with. If you say that he does, show us some decree or letter or something of the sort, so that we may cease troubling you and appeal to our master, meaning Tiberius, by means of an embassy. This last remark exasperated Pilate most of all, for he was afraid that if they really sent an embassy, they would bring accusations against the rest of his administration as well, specifying in detail his venality, his violence, his thefts, his assaults, his abusive behavior, his frequent executions of untried prisoners, and his endless savage ferocity. Of course, Pilate was not required to try prisoners to the satisfaction of the Jews before executing them, so long as they were not Roman citizens. But of these other crimes, Josephus mentions nothing, even though he says more about Pilate than all of his predecessors combined. Josephus had no problem recounting the sins of Felix. There is one other incident which was described briefly by Josephus, where Pilate had taken funds from the treasury in Jerusalem, from the temple treasury in Jerusalem, and used them to build aqueducts for the city. He ran aqueducts to bring water from 50 miles away. That is not exactly stealing, since Jerusalem benefited from the aqueducts. But the Judeans, <clears throat> when they protested, Pilate had some of them beaten. But his actions were not extraordinary 
within the context of the times. Not when Samaritans are coming into Judea and throwing dead bodies around everywhere. Not when the Jews are suffering endless wars and seditions, as Josephus had described. Continuing with Philo, as he proceeds in his description of Pilate, he increasingly loses credibility, at least in normal eyes. So, as he was a spiteful and angry person, he was in a serious dilemma, for he had neither the courage to remove what he had once set up, nor the desire to do anything which would please his subjects. But at the same time, he was well aware of Tiberius's firmness on these matters. This is all just bullshit rhetoric, and Philo is trying to mold Claudius to behave the way Philo wants Claudius to behave by using Tiberius and these false accounts of Tiberius and false accounts of Pilate as models. Philo was a shyster. When the Jewish officials saw this and realized, this is still the words of Philo, and realized that Pilate was regretting what he had done, although he did not wish to show it, they wrote a letter to Tiberius, pleading their case as forcibly as they could. This is absolutely contrary to the description of the same event which was given by Josephus. <clears throat> Who was a family who was from a family of Levitical priests, and therefore he was basically an insider into what was going on. What words, what threats Tiberius uttered against Pilate when he read it? It would be superfluous to describe his anger, although he was not easily moved to anger, since his reaction speaks for itself. <clears throat> for immediately, without even waiting until the next day, he wrote to Pilate, reproaching and rebuking him a thousand times for his newfangled audacity and telling him to remove the shields at once and have them taken from the capital to the coastal city of Caesarea, the city named Sebasta, after your grandfather. Sebasta just means pious. It was one of the titles that was used of Caesar Augustus to be dedicated in the temple of Augustus. This was duly done. In this way, both the honor of the emperor and the traditional policy regarding Jerusalem were alike preserved. Here Philo seems to have innovated in order to use Tiberius and Pilate as examples. We have already presented the account of Josephus for the same incident and described the empathy which Pilate had, where once he saw that the Judeans were willing to die, he voluntarily removed the images he had brought to Jerusalem and returned them to Caesarea Maritima. Instead, Philo omits all of this and focuses on making a mockery of Pilate, where he evidently <clears throat> hoped to dissuade Claudius from ever violating the temple or those Jewish religious sensibilities that others whom we have discussed here had also accused Pilate of having done. Philo's depiction of Pilate is sheer propaganda, but modern Christians who seek to please Jewish 
religious sensibilities, use it to diminish Jewish culpability for the crucifixion and shift the blame to Pilate. There is no doubt that there was antipathy between Pilate and the Jews, that Pilate seems to have despised them for their attitudes and behavior. So, as we had pointed out in our commentary on the trial of Christ before Pilate, Pilate seems to be mocking the Jews, <laughs> taunting them in his questions concerning their charges against Christ. <clears throat> it shall become apparent that he taunted them further as we proceed with our commentary on this chapter. It won't be this evening. But now, we have one more issue to address, which is the washing of the hands. Some commentators go so far as to state that the episode, as it is described by Matthew, is fictional because it is not mentioned by the other Gospels, <clears throat> and because only the Jews wash their hands in that sense, or only the high priests. But all of that is also a lie. The ancient Hebrews did use the washing of one's sins as an allegory for forgiveness. This is evident in the 51st Psalm where it says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. There is also a rather prophetic exclamation found in the 26th Psalm, <clears throat> which describes Pilate. I've hated the congregation of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. I will wash mine hands in innocency. So will I compass thine altar, O Yahweh. In Isaiah chapter 1, there is also a similar allegory, where Yahweh pleads to the children of Israel to cleanse themselves of sin before they attempt to approach him. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yeah. When ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Likewise, we read a similar admonition in the fourth chapter of the epistle of James. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. But in the law, sin was not washed away with mere water, even if water was sometimes used as a sign that one was clean, free of sin. Christ used a similar allegory in John chapter 13, yet he still had to die shedding his blood for the sins of the children of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we read, If one be sounds slain in the land, if you find one of those dead bodies the Samaritans tossed around, I guess. If one be found slain in a land, which Yahweh thy God gives thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who has slain him, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, the city that's closest, even the elders of that city shall take a heifer, which had not been wrought with, and which had not drawn in the yoke, in other words, a heifer that was not yet put to any work. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer into a rough valley, which is neither eared nor sown, 
a valley that had never been farmed, and shall strike off the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For them Yahweh thy God has chosen to minister unto him, and to bless in the name of Yahweh. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. And all the elders of that city that are next unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Washing their hands over the heifer, they would only declare that they were not guilty of any sin. But it is the blood of the heifer itself which was shed in exchange for whomever had committed the sin, as he would probably never be discovered. So the water alone did not remove the sin. There were also ritual cleansings which were ordained by the law, such as when a man was defiled by touching a dead body or some other unclean person or object. Then there were ritual washings, washings conducted by the Pharisees, who made laws governing such washings and pretended to a greater sanctity on account of them. But in the Old Testament, sin was not removed without a blood sacrifice. Sin was not removed by washing in water alone. This we read in the words of Paul of Tarsus in Hebrews chapter 9, where he said, And almost all things, because some things couldn't be cleaned at all, and almost all things are, by the law, purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. All of these passages are cited by Christian commentators in reference to Pilate. And either those who recognize that the Jews bear much greater guilt for the crucifixion, or by those who seek to shift the preponderance of the guilt to Pilate. However, while some of the correlations are interesting, and while Psalm 26 verse 6 seems to evoke the act of Pilate, or even be a prophecy of it, they are not as relevant to the act which was described by Matthew as what Pilate himself must have believed. The following paragraph is from my June 2005 essay titled, Baptism in What? While there are many examples of baptism, ritual cleansing in water in Greek literature, here I will cite one. In a play, Eumenides, by the 5th century BC Greek poet Aeschylus, his character, Orestes, says at lines 448 to 452, it is the law that he who is defiled by shedding blood shall be debarred all speech until the blood of a suckling victim shall have besprinkled him by the ministration of one empowered to purify from murder. Long since, at other houses, have I been thus purified both by victims and flowing streams. Here we see that the Greeks believe that one may be cleansed of sin either by baptism, which is flowing streams, or by the blood of sacrifice, comparing Hebrews chapter 9, verse 
13. Aeschylus wrote in the 5th century before Christ, but closer to the time of Pilate was Pausanias, who wrote in the mid-2nd century AD in Pausanias' Description of Greece, Book 9, Chapter 30, on Boiadia. He says in part, Boiadia is a district of Greece, there is also a river called Helicon. After a course of 75 stades, the stream hereupon disappears under the earth. 75 stades. Divide that, I think, by 8, and you get Roman miles. I, I, maybe it's 9 or 10 miles. After a gap of about 22 stades, the water rises again, and under the name of Bathyra, instead of Helicon, it flows into the sea as a navigable river. The people of Deum, evidently a city in Boiadia, say that at first this river flowed on land throughout its course. But, they go on to say, the women who killed Orpheus wished to wash off in it the bloodstains, and thereat the river sank underground so as not to lend its waters to cleanse manslaughter. Of course, we do not have to accept the fable. However, the account, which is not long after the time of Christ, which was written not long after the time of Christ, it's about a much older period, but it clearly shows that Greeks believed that the washing of hands in water, in this case a river, could actually remove guilt for bloodshed. The Roman poet Ovid was even closer to Pilate's time, preceding him by about half a century. Ovid lived from about 43 BC to about 18 AD, so he was writing around the same time that Christ was a young man in Galilee and Pilate was a young Roman soldier. Ovid's Fasti is also sometimes given more descriptive titles, such as the Book of Days or sometimes on the Roman calendar. The work is a six-book Latin poem describing the Roman calendar, which was published around the year 8 AD. From the introduction to Book 2 of the Fasti of Ovid, we read, Peleus cleansed Patroclus, and Acastus Peleus from the blood of Phocus by Hymonian waters. The Hymon being a river in Greece. Then a little further on, Alcmaon said to Achilles, absolve my sin. And he did absolve that son of Amphiaris. Ah, too facile to think the dark guilt of murder could be washed away by river water. These writings reflect what Pilate must have also believed, that by washing his hands, he was free of the blood of Christ, at least as a sign that he was forced to proceed with the execution while wanting no part in the crime. Pontius Pilate was certainly not perfect, being a mere man and a pagan Roman official. However, at every turn, those who try to slander Pilate and try to lay undue guilt upon him, while at the same time 
trying to diminish the guilt of the Jews for the crucifixion of Christ and those who even question the integrity of the apostles of Christ are rebuked by the historical records. Only the Jews can be blamed for the crucifixion as they left Pilate no other choice. And as the apostles of Christ attested, only they have culpability for the crime. So we read where he had where we had left off in John chapter 19, in verse 16. So then he handed him over to them that he would be crucified. We will commence our commentary at this point in our next presentation on the Gospel of John. Yahweh willing. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and of no other race of supposed people, and certainly not the God of the Jews. And good night.